First, the bad news. SAP Business AI won't generate amusing holiday cards, but it will personalize career paths for your people and let you know which suppliers are best so you can be ready for the next opportunity. Revolutionary technology, real-world results. That's SAP Business AI. You're listening to Most Innovative Companies. I'm Josh Christensen. On today's episode, we have another panel from the Fast Company Innovation Festival this past fall. This discussion is titled The Outlook for 2023 with Ken Chenault and Penny Pritzker. Enjoy. Good morning, everyone. Uh, Welcome to the session, The Outlook for 2023 with Ken Chenault and Penny Pritzker. Uh, We are keeping things fast and furious here. I know we just wrapped up another session. Quick introductions, uh, they don't really need much of much of them, these two. Penny Pritzker is a serial business builder. She has started seven businesses. She has invested in many others. She was President Obama's Commerce Secretary. Um, and there's a whole bunch of other things I could tell you about, but we're just gonna get um, to Ken. Ken. Ken Cheneau is the former chairman and CEO of American Express. Um, he is the managing director of the venture capital firm, General Catalyst. Um, he is on the board of our uh, previous uh, panelist Brian Chesky's company, Airbnb. Um, so yeah, let's uh, let's get into it. Um, I'm going to start with a question. Um, I'll start with you, Ken. Um, let's compare and contrast 2008 and 2022, and really even the last couple of years. These are tumultuous periods. Um, what do these com- What do these periods have in common? Um, how do they differ? What does this portend for the future? So I think if I if I look at the current situation, the reality is we are nowhere close to the financial crisis in 2008. And uh, having lived through that, uh, it was a truly terrifying time. Uh, And, you know, I know Brian was up earlier. And one of the things I said to Brian is, as I think he mentioned, is that you really are defined by a crisis. And the other thing, in fact, I said to Brian is, understand if you don't get through the crisis, in essence, you're gonna lose your privilege to lead. Not that the board is gonna fire you, but in fact, the reality is the organization is gonna lose faith. And that's just the reality of leadership. And, And as I think Brian said, it takes courage which he really exhibited to manage through the crisis. But if I think about 2008, and Penny certainly knows this well, is companies didn't have really strong balance sheets. I mean, it was a real issue. Uh, uh, Second is from from a liquidity standpoint, it was a real problem. The economy had slowed down tremendously. And the lack of access, frankly, to funding was, was a real concern. So just to give you a sense is when one of the things I said to the entire organization, and one of the things I believe, which is sort of my leadership mantra, is the role of a leader is to define reality and give hope. And it really, it sounds simple. I think about those words every day. It is really hard to figure out what the reality is. And then what are the concrete reasons to have hope? And so for the organization, one of the things I said was, and this will give you a sense of the difference between then and now, is one I said we have three objectives in this crisis. One is to stay liquid. 
And let me explain to you what that means, everybody in the company, what that means and what your role is. Second is, I think that it's important for the credibility of the company over the moderate to long term to stay profitable. And the third, and this was the most controversial with respect to investor analysts, I said, we're going to selectively invest in the business. And frankly, there were some analysts who said, you shouldn't be investing in the business because who knows what's going to happen. And I said, no, at the end of the day, we're here for the moderate long term. We're going to invest in the business. If I look at the environment we're in now, and let me be clear, I think we're headed to a downturn. But when people say the environment today is horrible, I don't agree with that at all. It's just that we were flush with capital. System was flush with capital and low interest rates. And people, frankly, who didn't have very good business models said, I think I'm brilliant. I mean, the reality is if you have a flood of capital and you have low interest rates, you know, it's not that hard to, to have a business. And so that's the situation we're in. But in the financial crisis, it was very different. Today, the, the unemployment rate is very low. You know, that's really important. If you look at credit card companies, spending is good and credit losses are very low. In the financial crisis, everybody was drowned by credit losses. It's a fundamental difference. But the concern I have about today is we have a class of companies that in fact have been gorging over capital, and that's a real concern, and I think are gonna hit the wall. And I think secondly, it feels like we're headed in a slower downturn, and it's not clear to me what the pathway forward to really get the economy in better shape. We could talk about that later, but let me hand it over to Penny. I think I, I would build on on what Ken said, and I love I love your your definition of leadership during a crisis with, uh, around uh, defining reality and def and clarifying how to, why you should have hope. And I think that I think that this is very different. Our our financial system is not at risk. Right. Our financial system was at risk. I mean, think about the United States of America's financial system was really in real trouble. Yeah, it's a matter of days. In a matter of days. And, and the day that I, I was on a call with, you know, uh, uh, President-elect then Obama and a number of his advisors, and you realize, oh, my God, you could be presiding over you know, the, the implosion of the American financial system. So it was, it was a very different time. Having said that, we're dealing with a set of unknown circumstances today that we've not navigated before. And I'm, I just want to talk about a few because I think that we have to think about this as there's big long-term implications. Our supply chains are completely messed up. Absolutely. And I don't care what business you're in or you think you're in, uh, you are affected by that. Even if you're a purely digital SaaS company, you are affected by that uh, because of the silicon issues, let, let alone everything else. 
But we're also, what does that mean? We're moving from, when I went to business school, a just-in-time you know, Kanban system was state-of-the-art. We perfected that over the last decades of just-in-time inventory. We are now moving to resiliency in inventory and security in inventory. And that is a very expensive and costly transition that is not going to be solved in a year or two. That is moving your supply chain closer. That's making it more diverse. That requires a lot of investment in inventory, changes of locale, and capital investment. That that trend is, is with us, I think, for a while uh, until we settle down. The war in Europe is something, we haven't seen war in Europe in 70 years. And it feels like it's very far away and you might as well think about it as it's right in our backyard because of the implications for food and fuel. Mm -hmm. And what's gonna go on in Europe this winter and you know, Putin just announcing he's gonna recruit more soldiers right. and, and you know, double down. 300,000. Yeah, we don't know what that means. But what we know it means is greater uncertainty in the world, and that's going to impact all of us. And then you add on top of it, the good news is we have low unemployment. The consequence of that, though, is we have very high wage inflation, which is positive because it's meeting the moment. Uh, and, but, and yet it's, a, it's affecting everybody's operating costs. And so you're going to see an implication in, the, in everybody's business in terms of margins are going to get squeezed. And so it, in, the implications of all of this is we have to manage our businesses differently than we have. Yes, capital would, I mean, we've lived for the last 12 years since the great financial crisis with zero interest rates for in all intense purposes, and we're flush with money, and the money supply is, is massive. The Fed is now pulling in the money supply at a rate of $95 billion a month. So think about taking a trillion dollars out of the economy, you know, over, over the next 12 months. That's a lot of money. And they're going to raise rates to be higher than the rate of core inflation. So we're in for managing in a time that we've not seen in 40 years in this country in terms of inflation. Uh, you know, I'm not sure how many of us spent time thinking about money supply in the last 40 years, but not really top of mind. Uh, and so it's a different time uh, to be a leader. And exactly how we're going to come out of it, it's not clear. But having said that, it's a real opportunity for leaders to shine. And I believe that great companies uh, will come out, you know, existing companies will rise because if they are wise and take a long-term perspective and are smart. And I think a lot of marginal businesses that got capital uh, are going to go away. You know, one thing I would just add, uh, Penny, and that was really terrific, is I think this is a tremendous time in the right way to start a company. If you look at some of the best companies, they actually were started during a crisis or a product. So just going back in history, the American Express card came out in 1958. 
in the midst of a deep recession. And you literally can look at some of the top companies in the world and see that either they launched a major initiative or they started. And so one of the things that I think is really important in these times is you really have to innovate and you have to change your model. And so people have said to me, well, this is a bad time to start a business. I've said, no, it is not a bad time. It's actually a good time because a lot of people will be frozen. Mm -hmm. uh, they will be afraid to act. And so the question is really understanding, are you building a company for the moderate to long-term? And if you are, then it's all about how compelling your ideas are. Penny, you look like you want to jump in. Yeah, no, I totally agree with that. And I think the other thing is uh, companies born today or who are, um, let's say, in their um, nascent years uh, have to have discipline, yep. have to have massive discipline. And they're also born with um, new technology as opposed to it's really hard to transition a company to new technology. And it's been done. We have companies that are like American Express, you know, that are, have a long history and have lived through a lot of, of change. Um, but it's very hard when you're, you're basically, your backbone is, is in an analog world and you have to transform yourself. And that's the opportunity for disruption. Uh, and so I'm optimistic about that. And the other thing is innovation is on a massive rise in, right. in this country. It's so exciting. Uh, and even, even, you know, I sit on the board of Microsoft, even companies like Microsoft that are, you know, been around for a long time in the technology world are having incredible innovation Absolutely. going on. And, and it is, it's hard to contain yourself when you see the potential and possibility. <laughs> Absolutely. Great. Um, let's, let's pivot uh, here into the overlap between business and politics. Penny, I'm going I'm to stay on you here. The Biden administration, to whom you informally advise as a member of the Science and Technology Council, had a, had a big summer. Um, passed the <laughs> semiconductor bill, the climate health uh, and tax bill, um, climate health care and tax bill. Last year's bipartisan infrastructure um, bill was already in place. Um, how will the implementation of these public sector initiatives um, affect people who run businesses and by extension, uh, the economy? Well, first of all, let me just, for those of you who don't live this kind of legislation, it's massive and it's a massive opportunity for everyone in this room who's in the world of innovation. Uh, and they're huge for the economy and they're huge for American competitiveness. And so I think actually, you know, we all have our moments where we complain about Washington. I actually think Washington got it right. Uh, the CHIPS Act and the Science Act are $250 billion of innovation over the next 10 years to invest in uh, R&D, to invest in $50 billion in semiconductors, which is huge. We desperately need it. I was in Asia last week and uh, uh, I was talking to several of the semiconductor manufacturers. This is terrifying if you think about it. They're sold out through 2023. You want a semiconductor? Sorry, not available. It's all gone, it's sold. And there's no additional capacity. 
So this is not coming none too soon to our country. The infrastructure bill, which uh, you know is the largest infrastructure bill in the United States since Eisenhower's time, has $65 billion in there for broadband. I don't know about you, but certainly one of the things we learned in Chicago is our broadband infrastructure was not what we thought it was. And I know the Department of Commerce was has an, has an agency that's responsible for broadband. And, you know, we thought we, we knew where our broadband coverage is. I'm telling you, we woefully underestimated. You know, we knew we had issues in the rural America. We have issues in, in, in downtown cities, in urban America, in terms of broadband coverage. Coverage in a school or coverage in the library is not sufficient. Every home needs to have broadband, high-speed broadband access. The Inflation Reduction Act, which I... I think is amusing, and that's how it's titled. <laughs> but it's really, think about it as $370 billion predominantly for green energy, desperately needed in this country. And, and why do we need the federal government's money? We need the federal government's money in innovation because, it, you know, the valley of death. There is just, there is early innovation and, and, and bringing to commercialization that's very hard for private capital to fund. And this is essential for American competitiveness. It's smart, it's exciting, and, and, it's, gonna pay, and it's paying off. And I'll give you some examples. Um, Intel announced uh, in the last couple of weeks a $20 billion plant in a uh, semiconductor plant in Ohio. Micron announced a $15 billion uh, semiconductor plant in Idaho. Uh, Wolf Speed announced a plant in uh, North Carolina. TSMC, the Taiwanese company, announced a $12 billion plant in Phoenix. Uh, this is fabulous momentum, but what's going to happen is not just those plants, Think about all the training that's going to go on in the universities and community colleges around these plants. Think about the ecosystem ripple effects in these communities. It's, it's incredible. It's really good for the economy. It's really good for United States competitiveness. So you clearly see why um, Penny was a great Commerce Secretary. Yeah. <laughs> uh, she really was fabulous. You know, let me just add that I think one of the things that people should be looking at, particularly those who are starting up businesses, is what are gonna be some of the needs? So you just think about, for example, I know we'll get into this, workforce. The need for reskilling and training, that space is gonna, should explode. There should be a great deal of innovation around there, and there are countless areas. So what is important is this is really the pieces of legislation are transforming. And part of what you need to look at is how can ideas now really be ac accelerated based on this legislation? Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's, a, it's a perfect segue into my next question, which has to do with workplace um, transformation. So uh, the workplace, as we all know, completely transformed by the pandemic. Um, other forces that were already at play, but massively accelerated by the last couple of years. Um, the, the, the part of this that tends to get the most press and attention is the effect on the professional class. Um, but the working class, um, who couldn't pivot to Zoom, um, were ravaged by the pandemic. Um, so, Ken, let's start with you. What have we learned during this transformation? Uh, what are the challenges and opportunities that, uh, that it presents? Well, I think clearly, uh, I think as we all know, this was really a, a question of 
shining a very bright light on the impact of the haves and the have-nots. Uh, and it really was a tale of two cities. Um, you know, it was interesting and, and I understand it, but, you know, everyone that people who were influent, affluent were talking about, this is unbelievable to spend time with family. It's just been great. And so there were parts of it for me that were absolutely fantastic. But if you think about a low-income person or a single mother with children, it was hell. Uh, it was really uh, just ripped them apart. And so the implications for the workforce uh, are, are very significant. I think Brian mentioned Vivek uh, Murthy, who's the Surgeon General. And I know in my conversations with him, one of the things he's concerned about is loneliness, but also he thinks there's gonna be an avalanche of mental illness. And so the question is, what can companies do? Um, how can they not only help in the reskilling and training of people, but how are they going to help them from a mental illness standpoint is pretty fundamental. So how do you reimagine the workplace? And so I think the lesson for me was one that we knew, but I think we saw starkly is that the less fortunate to your adjective were ravaged. And what we've got to do is understand, which we certainly do, what are the basic needs? How are we addressing? It's not just from a government standpoint, but at the end of the day in the pandemic, people had to show up to work. They were the heroes. Uh, but they were heroes who did not really have a choice. Uh, and I think one of the things that I'm very focused on is how to get people into family-sustaining jobs. Uh, because one of the things that I believe politically uh, is the, the average worker or low-income worker doesn't see people fighting for them. And uh, I think almost everything we do should be through the lens of how do we create meaningful jobs? How do we give people career pathing opportunities? And I think what we've got to focus on, there is a tremendous correlation between physical and mental well-being. That sh should be an incentive for companies. We look about, look at the skyrocketing insurance costs. And so that clearly tells you we need more focus on on prevention and how we do that. So I think that there are a lot of nodes that need to be connected mm -hmm. uh, relative to the workforce. But I think, you know, one of the things we're all struggling with is um, how to create a culture and community for people going forward. So I'm not on one extreme of saying everybody should come to work or everyone should work um, virtual. But the reality is we need to figure out how we're gonna create a sense of community and culture in our companies. And that's an area where, where I'm not seeing enough innovation. And I think we've gotta innovate in this area. Um, and I believe there are tremendous opportunities.
But part of what we have to do is redefine what the workplace is. Uh, it's not just coming five days a week, but the workplace ultimately should be about how do you create a community? How do you build a culture? And how do you do it in a personal way? I think that's going to be very important. First, the bad news. SAP Business AI won't help you generate cubist versions of your family's holiday photos. But it will help you understand which supplier is best to help you roll out your plant-based packaging in Southeast Asia. Or identify the training your junior project manager needs to rise up the ranks. And automate repetitive tasks while you focus on big innovations. So you can be ready for the next opportunity. Revolutionary technology. Real-world results. That's SAP Business AI. And I, I, I really uh, concur with what Ken has said. I mean, I think early on and, and throughout the pandemic, what we learned is that we have huge holes in our social safety net, uh, both the formal social safety net and the informal social safety net. And that is just, uh, you know, and, and the people who paid the price were those people who um, were most in need and most vulnerable. Uh, for the mo you know for the most part, and that's just uh, and I saw it firsthand in Illinois. I ran the Illinois COVID Relief Fund. I, you know, my brother asked, who's the governor, asked me to create it, and then, you know, we were the early interventions before the federal government uh, arrived, and then, and you know, it was it was awful, just awful. Um, but in terms of work, I think what did we learn in terms of work? I think we learned that hybrid work can work. Um, and that technology is essential. We've accelerated our use of technology, but it's not a panacea. Not at all. It's got real issues. And hybrid doesn't foster sustainable collaboration or community. It fosters tactical execution. And we all prided ourselves on early on the productivity, but there was a price for that. The other part that I don't think we focused enough on is there's a lot of work that's apprenticeship. You learn by watching and seeing someone else do something. Uh, and particularly in, in um, services work and, and, you know, as a lawyer, as an investment banker, as an investor, as a, even as a manager and leader of a business. And a lot gets lost when it's that kind of just on-screen engagement. Um, I think we also learned it's hard to manage. It's very hard to manage a hybrid environment because it's hard to understand the two sides of the coin. One is productivity and the other side is burnout. There's real burnout. We carry these devices around, large and small devices. They're with us everywhere all the time, 24-7. When am I on? When am I off? When am I on socially because I want to be social or collaborative? When am I on my business? You know, um, the other thing we learned is we have a critical shortage of talent in this country. There are certain expertise we do not have enough of. Uh, just like we have shortages in our supply chain, we have shortages of critical workers. And the other thing we learned is turnover is high. Now, what is that telling us? It's telling us something that people aren't happy. 
that there's a lot of dissatisfaction or expectation mismanagement. Now, the result is companies are being forced to adapt, and those who adapt and figure this out are going to be winners. Absolutely. And they're going to attract the best talent. Um, how are they adapting? So part of it is they're saying, I can't deal with piecemeal solutions, technology solutions anymore. I need, I, my costs are going up. I need end-to-end -end solutions. So that's something to keep in mind. Big pressure on that. Um, companies need greater support for cybersecurity and cyber integrity because their workforce is basically connected through devices and they're vulnerable. We need to increase robotics um, for warehouses and manufacturing. We don't have enough people to do that work. Um, we need to have increased migration to the cloud. Uh, and why do we need that? It's to allow greater resiliency and also um, lower latency and more compute at the edge. So there's gonna be demand for all of that and the services that are required. The other thing I think we're, gonna, we're seeing is and we're going to see an absolute revolution in terms of artificial intelligence over the next you know, uh, year, three years, five years. It's going to change business models. So that means we also need to change training because we're going to have to learn as humans to work with AI. And what is our responsibility as the human? What is the responsibility of the mm -hmm. machine? Uh, and that's going to get forced on us because as the operating expenses go up, there's going to, and as wage inflation continues, there's going to be demand for greater efficiency. As Ken said, we're going to have to spend more on training and reskilling. Uh, and I'll tell you a story. We have a uh, managed services company uh, that's based across the United States, and we're, we're investing in places like West Virginia where we're training folks to go into IT services. Uh, and you know, coal, demand for coal jobs is way down. Need for IT services way up. We're helping folks you know, totally move their jobs, you know, their skills and capabilities 180 degrees. And the final thing that Ken said that I think we really need to focus on is mental health. Mental health in schools, mental health in jobs, mental health and communities writ large. And we are ill-prepared as a country for this. First of all, we treat it as a stigma. I was at a conference, not last week, the week before. The very first speaker talked about their mental health challenges, their personal, and this was a leader of a very successful tech company. And I thought, whoa, we are in a different time when people are starting to talk openly about mental health challenges. It is all around us. We don't as a society acknowledge it and we're not good at dealing with it. And we're going to have to be because this you know, technology is having an effect on uh, our communities and our mental well-being. Absolutely. Yeah, I agree with that completely, particularly the mental health part. Um, a book I'll just take the opportunity to recommend that I read recently was Andy Dunn's book called Burn Rate. I don't know if you've 
heard about this. He's the founder of, of Bonobos, and he's incredibly raw and open about his his struggles with that. And it, it, it's a huge step forward, I think, in destigmatizing the subject, especially among founders and CEOs. Um, let's talk about the outlook for uh, for DEI um, in 2023 and, and and going forward. So um, it has now been uh, in more than two years since the killing of George Floyd and the the, the reckoning with systemic racism across our, our society. Um, at Fast Company, we are hearing um, significant rumblings from people that work in DEI, uh, people that went from maybe consulting firms, um, working on DEI issues, to being hired by Fortune 500 companies and other big companies to, to be the DEI executive. Um, frustration with a lack of progress, um, a sense of stalling momentum on this front. Um, can you, you, you confront this problem directly through your nonprofit 110? Uh, which is a group of executives that seeks to upskill. You mentioned uh, this earlier, upskill and hire 1 million black Americans in well-paying jobs, family-sustaining jobs uh, in the next 10 years. So from your perspective, working with this group and you know, having yourself been the CEO of American Express, how do we deal with this challenge going forward and make sure that this momentum does not lag? Yeah, I think, I think we're clearly lagging. Uh, remember uh, a number of interviews I did uh, post uh, the murder of George Floyd. And uh, the corporate community uh, was really trying to move forward. And people asked me, are you optimistic? And I said, no, uh, because I've seen this movie before. There is this spurt of activity and then it drops. Uh, and that's why on 110, we set a target and we said to people the two things that are required. One is you have to agree to a 10-year target. And people said, well, I, you know, could I come in for a year or two? No, because it's about commitment and persistence. So a 10-year target on jobs and a 10-year financial commitment to drive that. And so we now have over 70 of the Fortune 100 that gives me some, some hope. Uh, it really, 110, as I've told people, we're in the early stages. We're a startup. Uh, but we're really generating good momentum. And one of the key things we're focused on is it's a million jobs for Black Americans who do not have a four-year college degree or did not finish college. Because that's the population that's really critical. And what we've also said is, and Penny was a real champion of this when she was Secretary of Commerce, is we got to move to a skills first focus rather than this requirement that you have a four-year college degree. Now, let me be clear, I'm all for people going to college, but you shouldn't have to go to college to have a family-sustaining job, to have a career path. A four-year degree should not be a barrier because there's talent out there. Uh, and one of the things that I think has happened with 110 is we're in a situation now where companies recognize that if they change the job requirements for our initiative, they're changing that requirement for everyone. So if you think about in our country, you know, it's either win-lose. This is a situation where just as you would in a marketing effort say, I want to focus on a customer segment, but what I hope is that it's going to have broad appeal. Well, that's exactly what is happening with 110 is it's not only going to impact, I think, black Americans in a major way, but it's going to impact everyone. 
in the workforce because it's going to open up more opportunity. The key thing, I think, as we think about DEI, and I'll just give a few headlines and talk about woke. At the end of the day, I'm very, very concerned with the indiscriminate use of the term wokeism. I don't really know what that means. It covers everything, but you talk about the ultimate in cancel culture. It is to say it's woke. So, you know, I was interviewing um, someone for a major job. I said, you know, I'm just concerned about what wokeism is. And I said, what is it? Help me understand. Said, well, I'm, I don't like to feel guilty about things. And I said, boy, that's, you're really not human. If you're telling me you don't feel guilty about anything or you don't have compassion or you don't have understanding. And many of you don't know that one of the famous periods in, America, in modern American history was the McCarthy era. And the smear tactic used was you're red. Um, and it covered everything. And I would just tell you one, no matter what your political philosophies are, don't stifle the debate. Don't stifle people saying, I want to talk about various issues. And one of the things in your companies, I'm really telling people, I just don't want to use the term woke because you can't define what it is and it covers everything. But it goes back to if we want a society where everyone feels that they can have an opportunity, We've got to understand the importance of having a healthy society. And that's one of the reasons why companies should play such an important role in DEI. But since we just have a few minutes left, I want to let Penny say her piece. Well, first of all, I want to say, you know, Ken has been a real champion and leader for all of us and mentor to all of us. And we're really lucky to have him in that position because he's extremely thoughtful. So I just want a major shout out, Ken, to you and your leadership, but I could not agree with you more. I mean, I'll t tell you, it, you know, my experience, I've been a, a professional now for almost, you know, 40 years. And um, really the first time I worked in a diverse workforce was when I worked in the Obama administration. And it was the first time I went into a meeting where there were as many men as there were women in the room. There were people of all different uh, backgrounds uh, and we made better recommendations and had better conversations and they were more thorough because of that diversity in the room. And I hate to say it, I went my career and a lot of, you know, where I was often only, the only woman in the room or one of two, and there was otherwise the diversity, as I used to say to some of my uh, colleagues, I don't get it, diversity seems to be a blue shirt in this room. You know, it's, it's, it, it, so to me, if, until you experience that, you don't know it. And that's one thing I want to say. Two is, uh, is that, uh, and, and once you've experienced the power of diversity, you don't go back. You do not go back because you recognize you're smarter, you're more thoughtful, it, you have, and I know all the data shows better outcomes, but until you experience it, and I think that's part of what has to happen. In Chicago, our population is a third African-American, a third Latinx, 
and a third white and Asian. If we don't have diverse workforce in Chicago, you know, where are we going to find the people to do things? So the other thing that is a reality is we have to look at, I mean, I look at this room, it's phenomenal. It's phenomenal who's in this room, the diversity in this room. It's important that companies embrace the place that they're creating. And this goes to culture and goes to, you know, I keep saying to our HR folks, don't give me a DEI policy. That's our people policy. It needs to be part and interwoven into how you live every day and how you as a business leader and as a company executive, you know, show up every day. And we're all learning. I mean, I have a ton to learn and, and, and I'm, I'm, I am, you know, uh, embrace that. But I think that we have to, and I see it, I see people moving beyond, but it has to be sustained. And that's why what Ken is doing is so important. He's saying, no, no, you can't be in my club. You can't be in my group if you're not going to have a sustained effort and a sustained commitment. And that's absolutely essential. Yeah, and I would just say it's really important, no matter what stage your company is at, that you're institutionalizing this commitment and you're giving both the business rationale, but also the people rationale, that we want to be in an environment where everyone feels that they have opportunity. Uh, and I think what's important, I'll just say at American Express, one of the things I'm very proud of is that we really started our effort in earnest in the late 80s. And in our senior jobs, one of always the question that I would ask people would be, what's your commitment and show me what you've been able to do. And that's really carried forth. So my successor um, uh, has continued to really push diversity through the company. And, and that's, that's what's really important because I think what all of us feel in the institutions we're involved in is after you leave, what happens? And to me, you fail as a leader if it falls apart. So frankly, all these CEOs who blame their successor, two years later, give me a break. <laughs> you know, it's, I always said the company's got to perform at least well for the next five years after you leave. Yeah. And so how do you institutionalize it? That's what and, and, and the other word I would use is intentional. Absolutely. Every single one of you needs to be intentional about this. Because, it, and, and this is, the snapback is too simple right, right. now. And so it, it's like you have to, it, and vigilant. Absolutely. Hold yourself accountable and hold your organization accountable. Feels like a good moment to good. end on. Thanks very much, Ken Chanel and Penny Pritzker. Thank, Thank you. you.